Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened and arisen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit. Despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, Fat, vowed or celibate, we rise. <laughs> Triple R. My name is Beth AQ, bringing you a show all about storytelling. I acknowledge that we broadcast on stolen, unceded lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge this country's first peoples as the first storytellers of this land and acknowledge that context in which we continue to share stories, pay respects to elders past and present and extend my deepest respects to any First Nations people tuning in this afternoon. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. As I'm sure you might know by now, Radiothon is starting this Friday, the 21st of August. And yeah, it has been a tough year for so many people and, and that, yeah, it is including Triple R who have lost most of the sponsorship revenue for the station. So being a listener-funded station is a really huge aspect of what makes this station so great. Um, We aren't beholden to anybody. Uh, You know, it is really a station that is created and essentially paid by from you and from me and everybody that listens to this great station. Uh, So if you're in a position to do so, subscribing is certainly the best way that you can keep Triple R operating as a genuinely independent and non-commercial broadcast service. So I hope you can keep that in mind and I hope you can dig deep over this radiothon. It truly does mean the world to all of us here at Triple R and I think all listeners as well. Coming up on the show today, in just under 10 minutes, I'll be joined by local comics artists, 
artist Rachel Ang, who has just created a new work for Multicultural Arts Victoria as part of their Shelter series, which is showcasing the works of 45 culturally diverse Victorian artists and artists of colour who are all reflecting on and responding to challenges that we've been facing during and beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. And Rachel's work is called Yellow in the Blue, And it's a work that explores home as a charge space, uh, which has collapsed ideas of public and private. And yeah, it's a very moving piece and I'm very excited to be chatting with her about that in just a little bit. And later on in the show, PhD candidate and Wiradjuri brother boy and pinnacle scholar and competitive Irish dancer Hayden Moon is going to join me to talk about a piece that they wrote for Archer Online called Transgender Inclusion in Dance, Paving the Way in Irish Dancing. And as it sounds, it is a piece that is all about his experience of being the only transgender person competing in Irish dance in Australia uh, and the wonderful changes that he's been able to make in that community. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. The COVID pandemic has proved a tough time for so many people and with most people in Melbourne now working from home, concepts of home and the ways that we think about and exist in the spaces and places that we live has shifted and changed. Yellow in the Blue is a new comic from NAM-based artist Rachel Ang and it explores home as a charged space which has collapsed ideas of public and private. This new work has been created as part of Multicultural Arts Victoria new shelter series. I've got Rachel Ang joining me on the line. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon and welcome back to the Glass House. Hey Beth, how are you? I'm good. Um, I thought to start, I mean, as an artist, how has your, I suppose, experience changed of your working life since the pandemic kind of hit? Um, yeah, I guess in two kind of ways. So um, during the week, I work in architecture. So we've all shifted to working from home and um, doing all meetings online. So that's kind of quite um, stressful, I guess. Though, of course, like it's a lot more comfortable in some ways to work from home. Um, so that's that's been one aspect. And the other aspect, I guess, is of being a creative and working alone and putting stuff out in the world. And normally, of course, like, as you know, so much of a creative life is the community that we have around the things that we make and um, getting to, uh, like, see people at events and, and around the place. And I feel recently that the stuff I've been putting out in the world, I, it doesn't feel real. Do you know what I mean? Mm, absolutely, yes. I can very much relate to that. Um Yeah, and I feel like this comic really highlights there's some really like astute observations about this dissolving of this, you know, the public and private selves through the ways that we are existing now and how we interact with online. And, you know, even just in the sense that we might go from having a work meeting via Zoom to having a, you know, catch a friend catch up via Zoom. I'm interested in, I suppose, how those kind of circumstances have been highlighted for you or how they felt for you. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you mention, you know, work and friendship both existing on Zoom. It, it's kind of like um, as if 
everything, like going to the doctor, going to work, like um, talking to your partner, it all happens now in the same room all the time. Mm. And like the, the room only has glass walls or something. Um, yeah, I guess um, I, I feel... Looks like we may have lost Rachel there. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You are listening to Triple R. We just had a bit of tech issues there, but we do have Rachel Ang on the line talking about her latest comic, Yellow in the Blue. Um, We were just talking about the... I suppose the dissolving of the public-private selves and using the same mediums to have most of our interactions, whether it is with the doctor or whether it's with friends or whether it's with colleagues and, yeah, how that's kind of shifted our perspective of the ways that we exist in our homes. Do you want to, I suppose, continue where, if you remember where you're at? <laughs> um, not really. I guess, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting thing um, I, I realize that a lot of people I work with have children, <laughs> which, like, we we literally didn't know that much about each other's lives. Um, and that's a really, like, jarring thing to see the kids on Zoom meetings for some reason. Mm. Um, because, obviously, yeah, it, it's when you have a really stressful job, it's difficult to imagine that people doing this job have children, but then so many people do. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I suppose, you know, just in a, I don't know, in quotation marks, like professional sense, there there is the decision to share as much of yourself as you want to and also, you know, not share everything. And that's also okay, oh. you know, in a work sense, but it's, you know, it's becoming increasingly harder to uh, create those kind of boundaries for yourself when you are physically yeah. in your home. Yeah, I think that's it. Like I had a really, I think maybe I had a clearer idea of even who I was before because I had all these different compartments, but the compartments actually made up the structure, like it, it made up my life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And now I'm like, I, I don't know how much people, like I don't have a strong sense of how other people see me anymore either. Mm. I, I love the part in the in your work where you speak about how people used to enter your home by the front door and now we kind of use that door as a symbol of protection from the outside world um, and the ways that we let people in, uh, you know, as we've been talking about it through our screens. And obviously, yeah, it's this, I feel kind of tension between using your phone and your like computer to feel connected, but equally it can be incredibly uh, overwhelming. How, how have you felt um, navigating that tension? Yeah, it's really, it's really hard, isn't it? Because I think, yeah, as you say, like the phone or the laptop or whatever is how we do everything. Like it's also how, it's how we work and also how we like just watch Netflix or whatever. Mm. I think that I just try to like not look at, screens too much because um I, I feel like and I see this with my friends who like say have been dealing with heavy stuff or being trolled online is that it becomes this like like a door that you no longer have any agency over anymore like once it, it's more like a cat flap than a door that you can lock you know like once you're kind of addicted to checking in all the time you you can't close it 
Yes, very much so. And just like, yeah, I, I suppose even if you're thinking about the physicality of a house and just the, um, oh. I suppose going on to the way that you speak about the functionality of homes and the ways that, you know, I suppose in a traditional or maybe in a time that isn't a pandemic way, the ways in which we use specific spaces, you, the kitchen to cook, the bedroom to sleep, etc., you know, which can kind of give us this sense of stability or almost normalcy in the ways that we use different spaces and sometimes out of necessity because you know, the stove is in oh. the kitchen. But, um, oh. yeah, it's interesting and, and even these things and how they're collapsing because, you know, I know that in my house we've, um, we've got desks in bedrooms and the ways that these 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 spaces are, are being changed and you have this really amazing visual of um, I suppose like all of the colours kind of collapsing onto each other. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I guess so. So for those who haven't read the essay, I start off by saying that, um, you know, like humans have always um, separated different spaces for different activities. That's something that kind of makes us human and um, also kind of structures our ideas of the home and the self and the world. Um, uh, But, yeah, it's kind of, you know, I was reading somewhere that it's really bad feng shui to have a computer in your bedroom. Mm. (laughs) But now, like, that just seems so twee, the idea that you would ever switch off or (laughs) be able to not work in your bedroom. And I think that, you know, having all these parts of life mixed up, like maybe maybe it's not unhealthy. Like I don't want to seem really prudish that like I wouldn't eat in bed or something, but it just seems to me that I feel um, like not rooted anymore or something in each activity, like um, because you can work and also check Instagram and also do all these things at once and I guess no one's checking in on me because I'm just working from home Mm. I feel like I just can't concentrate on any one of those activities anymore like the because the spaces have collapsed time has kind of collapsed as well yeah absolutely I can really really relate to that and I'm sure many people that are listening can as well I'm I'm interested I feel like a lot of people have been speaking about dreams and how, you know, people's dreams and the way that we're processing information and the world in our subconscious has been different in this in this global moment. And you mentioned the impact um, that I suppose living this way has, you know, has changed the way that you dream. Can you tell us a little bit about, I suppose, what you feel like your dreams have told you about how this time is for you or how this experience is for you? Um, yeah, sure. Well, I, I've been having this recurring dream, which I find quite scary, but maybe it's not. I'll tell it to you and then you can comment. <laughs> okay. um, so I dream that um, I'm driving to a construction site for work, um, but I this is scary because in real life I actually can't drive. Like, I don't have a car. So in my dream I'm driving this massive SUV um, to site, and I, it keep, I can't control it. It keeps turning the wrong way, and I've got absolutely no control over the situation. <laughs> it's such a like, it's such a kind of nondescript dream to be to dream of driving a car. But for me, it's, everything's just like not quite right, and it's really scary. Like I always wake up like, oh my god, I was driving a car. <laughs> That does sound terrifying. 
Yeah, I know, right? And I guess it just speaks to this basic lack of agency and control that I feel in my life. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, the only thing that I can... I've become really fixated on all the things I can control because, like what I eat for dinner or whatever because I feel like I can't even control what time I go to bed anymore because I get stuck in these cycles of like reading the news and like panicking Mm. and then not sleeping at a normal time um yeah I feel like the kind of window of what I can exert any agency over is becoming really small Mm. Yeah, I I can yeah very much relate to that as well. I think um, something that I loved in your work is how you talk about uh, keeping a gratitude journal and having, I I suppose, trying to like assert some kind of, um, I don't know, like holding on to these moments of joy or these moments, these small moments that we can you know appreciate and that maybe gives us a sense of perspective about the world and what we're kind of attending to in ways that yeah I suppose again we're just trying to. I don't know, like for me it feels like I'm just trying to kind of maintain control or perspective in in a way through these like small moments. I'd love to know a little bit about that, um, what that process is like of keeping that gratitude journal and how maybe it's changed um, the ways that you're thinking. Yeah, I guess it it comes back to, you know, the window of what I can control. I got to the point where I was like so anxious all the time and I realized that the only thing I could control was what was in my own head and how I reacted to or appreciated what was happening. Um, uh, Like no one... No one can reach inside my head, hopefully, <laughs> or they can, but I, you know, I still have the most influence there. That's the only space that I can kind of um, be the dictator of. So um, I, I looked into it. There are heaps of apps that you can download for free, um, and then it's just um, a diary that you keep on your phone. I mean, you could do this with a notebook as well, but it's, it's kind of, if you're someone who looks at your phone a lot, it's good to have the prompt because otherwise you might forget. And I think that with habit building, I need as much help as I can get. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really simple. I try to do it every day and I realize that no matter how bad life seems, there's generally one good thing a day that you can be thankful for Mm. um and yeah sometimes the the ones that I feel the most grateful for are when I did something for myself because I feel a bit proud as well so like I got up early and went went for a walk before work that like you know when I think back over the day I'm like oh my god the day was so much better because I did that for myself Mm. yeah absolutely I think that it just, yeah, it feels like a really good bit of advice for, I suppose, everybody right now to just, yeah, keep everything in perspective and just to reflect on those joyous moments or, yeah, moments that kind of take us out of uh, the larger, perhaps more, uh, yeah, things that fill us with dread, essentially. Um oh. And Rachel, I feel like your your comics or your, you know, your visual essay to me really, it always, like your work in general always really highlights these profound feelings in this really um, precise, like condensed way, like with an economy of words and visuals and colour. And I'm interested in, I suppose, what kind of thinking goes into creating a work like this, um, especially given that it's, it's you know, it's memoir in a way and like we're talking about having uh, kind of collapsing 
uh, ideas around the self. I'm interested in how your that impacts your work when you are yeah reflecting on your own life experience. Um, yeah, it's well. Firstly, thank you. Those are really nice words <laughs> to say about my practice. Um, yeah, I think that my process in terms of I just I guess do a lot of thinking and like writing down thoughts that I have and um it does I don't yeah it's an interesting question it does really affect the way I think about myself and also I guess if you think about if you go through life thinking that you're going to write about it then it does probably change the way you observe yourself and the way you think about yourself and your identity um but I can't actually compare it to not living this way so I'm not I'm not too sure of the impact of it do you know what I mean mm, yeah it's just um, it's just the way it yeah. is mm. yeah but I think that you know for people who aren't creative um the the simplest kind of memoir is, you know, like just keeping a diary or something or like writing down a sentence a day. And um, I wonder if that would change the way people think about themselves. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But, um, yeah, it's really, you know, you mentioned that there's like an economy of words and images. And I think that that's um, maybe that's just one of the really great, beautiful things about comics is that you kind of don't need to say that much you can just kind of show and not you not tell if that makes sense Mm. um and just trust that people will kind of like pick up on what you're putting down yeah absolutely um well thank you so much for your time this afternoon it's been a real yeah joy to read this piece of work and I yeah I'd really encourage anybody to that's reflecting on what this moment means for for ourselves and and for concepts of home to to check it out it is on the multicultural arts victoria website um Rachel thank you so much for your time this afternoon No thank you Beth it was great to talk to you uh, if you don't know Rachel Ang's work, um, she's an incredible local comics artist um, who's been widely published um, by The New Yorker, The Washington Post and also Australian journals like The Lifted Brow, Going Down Swinging and Meandrin. We have been talking all about her latest visual essay, Yellow in the Blue, and yeah, you can check it out uh, now on the Multicultural Arts Victoria website at multiculturalarts.com.au. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Up until recently, transgender dancers couldn't compete in Irish dancing competitions in Australia, but competitive dancer, PhD candidate and Wiradjuri brother boy Hayden Moon changed that in 2018. He's just written an article all about it uh, for Archer Online and Hayden joins me now. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon and welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Um, Hayden, I'd love to, I suppose, start by knowing a little bit about your journey into competitive Irish dancing. When did you first begin dancing? So it's a a very long journey, I guess. I'll try and keep it short. Um, But I I did a little bit of Irish dancing as a kid because my grandma's Irish, so she she wanted us to, um, to do it. Um, and yeah, did it did it a bit as a as a kid, and then kind of 
got out of dancing as a teen and um, to focus on my studies in high school and then went back to it when I was 18, when I finished high school. So, yeah. <laughs> and I've been doing it ever since I was 18. I've been competing since then. And can you tell me a little bit about um, what the competitive world's like? Because I, I don't know a lot about it. Hmm. Um, what, what do you want to know exactly? Because it's, um, it's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose for people that don't know much much about competitive Irish dancing, what does the kind of the, the competition side of it look like? Uh, well, it can be quite serious. Um, and it, yeah, it can be, it's very, it's very competitive. I think a lot of people um, don't understand how competitive Irish dancing is. It's, um, it's very much a serious, serious sport. Uh, everyone takes it very seriously. Um, competitions can get very heated. Um, I mean, there are people who've lost friendships over competitions. Um, so it's, it's a very serious sport that people train all year round for. Um, so, yeah, competitions are a very serious deal. There's um, solo competitions and there's also Kaylee competitions. And Kaylee is what we call our teams. Um, it's the Irish Gaelic word for group and team dances. So we have both sets of competitions and um, yeah it's a very very serious sport we have uh, regionals states nationals local competitions um, Australian internationals and then there's also worlds um, and North Americans and all Scotland's and all islands and all of those competitions as well. Mm. And Hayden as you've written about the Irish dancing world is strictly governed by quite rigid and restrictive um, gender binaries. Can you tell us a little bit about the ways that that plays out? Yeah, absolutely. So the, yeah, Irish dancing is kind of divided into different sections. So when you're growing up, there's the girls' sections and the boys' sections that are divided by age. So, you know, you'll have the, the under-8s girls and the under-8s boys and then the under-9s girls and under-9s boys and so on and so forth. Um, and then when you get to the adult sections of over 18, you'll have the senior ladies and the senior men's, um, and they're all divided by age groups as well. So it's like very, very binary, both in terms of how you compete and what section you compete in, but also the steps are completely different, um, both in the Kaylee dances and the solo dances, um, even down to the shoes that you wear shoes are gendered, the steps are gendered, the movements are gendered, the costumes are gendered, um, and it's, yeah, it's very, very different mm. for each gender, each binary, binary gender. Yeah, and and Hayden, I'd, I'd love if you're able to talk, I suppose, a little bit about, you know, what you talk about in this article is uh, about transitioning and how that affected um, the way that you could dance and I suppose the policies that kind of keep in place this real gender binary. Can you tell us a little bit about I suppose, what that experience was like in relation to your dancing? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it was... I'm just trying to think how to word it con concisely because it was just such a complex experience where there are a lot of highs and a lot of lows and um, there was the physicality but also the emotional aspect and the mental aspect. So um, I guess in terms of the dancing, um, that was quite difficult physically, uh, but also psychologically because 
when I did transition from the senior ladies to the senior men's, I had to relearn how to do all of these steps and movements in, you know, in a masculine way, which is a completely different way to how I'd been dancing for like, you know, over a decade. So, you know, dancing as a woman, you wear what we call gillies, which are kind of like a ballet slipper. Um, and you have to stay high on your toes and you're not allowed to let your heel touch the ground at all. Um, if you do that in competition, you're going to lose quite a lot of marks. Um, and it's all about being very pretty and graceful and, you know, not making any noise and all of that. Whereas the men, the soft shoes specifically, hard shoe, it's a little bit less, uh, there's less differences, but the men's soft shoes, there's a heel on the, on the, uh, on the shoe and you're actually encouraged to stamp and to make loud noises with the heel and to do clicks and all these movements. And you're meant to look strong and, um, you know, forceful while you move across the stage. So like that was both physically demanding to have to fight against muscle memory and to have to learn how to do these steps in a completely different way in like a strong and masculine way and making noise and being forceful as opposed to being pretty and delicate. But it was also like this huge psychological barrier of, you know, I'd spent so long um, reminding myself in my head, like, stay high on your toes, don't make any noise, be careful as you move. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, you're not making enough noise and um, you're, you, you know, you're being too pretty and you're not being strong enough. And so it was, yeah, it was, it was very much something I had to wrap my head around and something that took a couple, well, I would say a couple months, but it, it honestly took about a year to really, like, you know, change that mindset of um, learning how to use my body as a dancer in a masculine way. Mm. Um, so in terms of the dancing, that that was quite difficult, both physically and emotionally and mentally. Uh, in terms of transitioning in regards to policies and bureaucracy and people's reactions, that was also kind of similar in that there were positives and negatives. Um, when I first told people that I was going to transition, it, the reactions were very polarized. Um, so at the first school I was at, they, you know, basically said, we don't want you at the school. Um, so I had to find a new school. Um, and then the school I went to was accepting, um, but the policy didn't allow uh, transgender people to compete. Like there was nothing in the policy about trans people uh, at all. So people were just really confused. Um, the committee just didn't know what to do because there was no actual, there was nothing written about this situation because there, there had never been a transgender senior competitor before. So people just did not know what to do. Um, so it was a lot of discussions and confusion and people just not knowing how I could compete. Could I compete? How to do that? What do we do? And then some people not being supportive and some people being supportive, but not knowing what to do. And, um, and that took about, I think six months, um, of just back and forth, um, communications and dealing with bureaucracy and having to get the policy rewritten so it actually included trans people and yeah all of this stuff um yeah and it was just it was very tedious and laborious but mm. you know eventually we were able to get that change happening um so I could compete and I did 
my first competition as a senior man in July last year. Mm, congratulations. That's, um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing, I suppose, to be able to actually get that policy changed and, you know, for any other trans person that comes behind you, that hopefully they don't have to go through the same struggles that you went to to actually get that, you know, written into the existence mm. of it. Um, so yeah, I think that's a it's yeah it's really great, and I'm so glad that it exists like that now. Um, Thank you. I'd love Hayden. I'd love to know, I suppose, a little bit more about um, you. Speak about you know dancing as a as a senior man and this feeling of of gender euphoria. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I would love to. This is my favourite subject. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, yeah, no, I really do enjoy talking about gender euphoria because I think that, um, you know, there is this kind of, um, you know, story that goes around amongst people who aren't transgender, you know, that being transgender is this negative thing or it's always like a sob story. And that's just not the case. Like... Mm. Obviously, yes, there are barriers that we face and there is a lot of discrimination. And, yeah, there, there were some really awful experiences that I, that I had to go through in order to get to where I am. And, I'm, you know, I'm very aware of that, but I'm very resilient and a lot of trans people are very resilient. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important to talk about gender euphoria because it's such a beautiful thing that trans people experience. Um, So if anyone who hasn't read the article, it's all good, I don't blame you. (laughs) But I will explain um, what that means. But basically gender euphoria is a feeling that transgender people have when we feel affirmed and supported in our gender and we feel this sense of overwhelming happiness to feel true to ourselves and feel like we're being seen as ourselves and affirmed as our gender. Uh, So that's what gender euphoria is. And for me, um, you know, people experience it in different ways and at different times and have their own ways of, um, of having and feeling gender euphoria. But for me, where I feel it most is when I'm dancing. Mm. Um, Because for me, dancing as a senior man is such a happy feeling because even if people were misgendering me uh, in everyday society or if they've misgendered me at a competition or, you know, if I've been misgendered or someone said something not quite nice to me or something, I then put on the men's shoes and I dance the men's steps and it's like I'm in my body and I'm feeling my body and my body is a masculine body doing the masculine steps and everyone around me is seeing me for who I am and they're affirming me in who I am and they're supporting me for who I am. Mm -hmm. And it's just this incredible feeling of watching and feeling my body do this incredible thing. You know, Irish dancing is a really, really hard sport to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So my body is allowing me to do this and my body is truly a masculine body and I can feel that in myself and the confidence that I, you know, what's the word, that I express when I dance then shows that to everybody else and they can see how happy I am and how affirmed I am in my gender and they see me for who I am. So it's, it's both, you know, it's both how I feel internally when I'm dancing but also how I feel others are are experiencing me when I dance. Mm. Yeah, well, it, it it sounds like it's a yeah a glorious feeling, and um, yeah, it's it's been really interesting to to read your piece. I 
I, I would love to know, I suppose, in an imagined future for you, you've spoken a lot about how Irish dancing, but, you know, the world at large kind of plays into gender binaries. Like if you were to imagine a future for Irish dancing where um, perhaps these rigid gender binaries weren't as present, what, what would that look like? Um, I think it's difficult when we're talking about sports like Irish dancing or ballet or, you know, um, these, you know, these dance styles that are very uh, steeped in tradition. Um, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to get to a point where, <clears throat> pardon me, where we don't have men's and women's sections, um, just because of the way that Irish dancing is. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of similar to ballet in that it's such a traditional dance style um, and art form that I, you know. I don't think we're going to get to that point. Um, I also don't even know how that would look because, you know, the way that Irish dancing is, I personally can't can't see it being ever completely being, you know, gender neutral just because of the, the tradition and the way that the, that the dance style is. But I think that there are other ways that we can um, allow trans and gender diverse people and people who don't identify with binary gender to be included in that sport. And I guess in that respect, what I would like to see in Irish dancing is, uh, you know, people who don't identify with a masculine or feminine gender being able to choose which, uh, which group they want to dance with. I think that's probably going to be our next battle. Mm-hmm. Um, just in the way that, yeah, that Irish dancing is, I, I, I think. And, you know, and there are beautiful, beautiful things about the way Irish dancing is in the different styles of, of dance. Um, but I think there is a way to include people who don't, uh, you know, don't have a feminine or masculine gender um, being able to choose which steps they want to do, you know, rather than it being about them having to do the girl steps or the boy steps rather being like, would you rather do the steps with the heels or the steps with the flat shoes? Or mm. would you rather do graceful steps or would you rather do strong steps? You know, um, I think that's going to be our next battle to get um, people who are gender diverse and um, non-binary and agender and don't have that masculine or feminine gender to feel more included um, because I, you know, I do recognize the, the privilege that I hold in being a transgender person who feels comfortable in a binary section. Um, that is, that is something that has kind of benefited me. Obviously it wasn't easy. It was a very difficult battle to go through as a trans person, but I do recognize that because I have a masculine gender and I feel comfortable dancing in the men's, um, that has made it easier for me than it would for someone who would say a gender to know where they fit. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you said, it's all about autonomy for each person being able to decide um, for themselves. Um, Hayden, I'd love to, just before I let you go, um, talk a little bit about the initiative that you've created, um, Intersectional Irish Dancers, uh, along with your co-founder, Tara. Uh, It is a platform uh, to support marginalised Irish dancers and to create a more inclusive Irish dancing culture. Can you tell us a little bit about this and um, I suppose, yeah, how your journey with it has been so far? Yeah, for sure. Um, So... Tara and I met a couple years ago through Irish dancing, um, actually, and, you know, we're both uh, gender-diverse people. Uh, Tara is non-binary and I'm transmasculine. So we were speaking over the years about, um, you know, being trans people in Irish dancing and how difficult that was for us. Um, And, you know, 
from that, we kind of realized all of the other barriers that there are in Irish dancing in terms of financial barriers, um, barriers for people with disabilities, um, you know, barriers for people with, you know, other concerns. And so we really realized that there needed to be a space for marginalised dancers to feel safe to talk about these issues. Um, so we first set up a Facebook group for marginalised Irish dancers to just talk about their experiences, to feel like they're not alone, because, you know, for me, I'm the only trans transgender person in all of Australia competing in Irish dancing, and that that can get to me sometimes. Mm. Um, so, you know, we thought there must be other people in similar situations you know, whether the only person of colour in their region or, you know, they're the only uh, disabled person dancing in Irish dancing in their region or something like that. So we thought to create this group so we could all connect with each other and kind of form connections so we didn't feel as alone. And um, we got a lot of interest from people who weren't marginalised but wanted to learn how to create a more inclusive space in their dance school. Mm. And that was when we decided to create the Instagram to um, kind of educate people and to, you know, allow people into this space of marginalised people um, to explain to them, like, how they can make their dance school more inclusive, um, how they can uh, be more accepting of marginalised people, like, what changes they can make, and um, and also just get some visibility out there, um, because, you know, one of the main, uh, you know, what's the word, like, just visibility changes so much, mm. you know, just people seeing me as a trans dancer has led to me receiving a lot of messages from people saying that, you know, I've inspired them or, you know, uh, they have a friend who's trans who now wants to Irish dance because they've seen me um, or, you know, they have seen me and it's inspired them to be more inclusive of trans people. So, you know, visibility really creates change. So, you know, we created the Instagram after the group to create visibility, to educate people, to you know, inspire people to be more inclusive of marginalised people. And it's just grown from there. Yeah, I love that. It really speaks to the you can't be what you can't see in a way, just having that visibility and representation for, as you said, for other um, <clears throat> trans or gender diverse people, dancers to be able to yeah. see it. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's a really great initiative. And if people do want to check it out, it is uh, the Instagram handle is Intersectional Irish Dancers. Hayden, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we were just chatting there with Hayden Moon, uh, a PhD candidate, competitive Irish dancer and Wiradjuri brother boy, talking all about his latest article that he wrote for Archer Online. It is called Transgender Inclusion in Dance, Paving the Way in Irish Dance. Dancing. Highly recommend checking it out. You can just head over to Archer online. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 